0: Okay, we've left off in Revelation 20. In just a moment, we're ready to read Revelation 20, verse 10. You may remember from last week's class, if you were present, that we talked about the fact that uh, Satan's locked up for 1,000 um, years, and that doesn't mean he's completely locked away, but John specifies in uh, Revelation 21 through 3, that he is not able to deceive the nations for 1,000 years. So he's still powerful, he's still influential, he still has a kingdom, he's still doing many uh, bad things. But until the little season, the time before Jesus' next and final coming, occurs, he's going to be limited as far as some of the things that he can do in the world, worldwide deception. Now, generally, when um, people think about Revelation 20, they often, and I'm not necessarily talking about members of the church, but they often think of things in this way. Need a little more space here. But they think, okay, you know, here's the Christian era, which we define as the thousand years and they would say, uh, you know, that period is going to end, and then after that period, uh, there's going to be another period, a second period of time. And that is going to be the period where Satan gets his time to do some things, and then the ideas kind of vary from there. When we think of the word after, though, and this isn't something that's been discussed as of yet, um, I want to toss out something for your consideration, and let's use what we're doing right now as an illustration. For example... On the left side, Bible class is going to run, we think, from 9 to 9.45. After we get to 9.45, then we're going to have something else follow. Now, many times we use the word after in that sense. We're talking about time. You know, after today, we'll have tomorrow. But is it not also true that we use after sometimes in a different sense? For example, if you think about the Bible class, we're dealing with the same period of time, right? But if you look at that 45-minute period, we have typically a prayer. After the prayer, what happens? Well, then we start class. So here's a situation where we're dealing with the same period of time. But we're in the second situation, we're looking at a sequence of events. Not an additional period of time. So, going back to the illustration that we gave just a moment ago, we can certainly understand why people would say, well, okay, here's the thousand years, and after that time, some have the idea that there's going to be another period of time. The word after can be used in that sense. But based on what we illustrated over here, is it not also possible to say, okay, here we've got the thousand year period, the Christian era, and a lot of stuff has happened throughout the Christian era, hasn't it? I mean, Jesus has come, He died. We've got uh, Satan being overthrown. He's limited in various ways. And then as you continue to look at the various events, you could look at the word after. And I think this is really the sense, the primary sense that is being found in Revelation 20. After, you know, some events, the devil is released. So if you have somebody say, well, look, that word after, that's got to mean that there's an additional period of time. No, it doesn't always mean that. Uh, And this is the way that we've kind of explained it as we've gone through class, but maybe this illustration uh, will help a little bit when you see that word after, because we've had that question specifically asked in this class, like it sounds like an additional period of time. But if you remember the Bible class illustration, uh, that may help. Uh, Let me toss out this as well, as you maybe process that a little bit more in your mind, or you may have a a hand that you want to raise in just a moment. Remember back in Matthew chapter 13? Jesus there offers a number of parables. And one of the, well, let's just go back there for a second. Most of us probably remember the basic details, but it may not hurt to go back and revisit that chapter before we start into Revelation 20. Let's get the
1: parable before
0: us, which starts in 24, and the explanation is going to be down in about verse 36. Another parable said he before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares, or bad wheat, also among the wheat, and went away. But when the blade sprang up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. And the servant of the householder came and said to him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? Whence then hath the tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. And the servant said unto him, Wilt thou then? that we go and gather them up. But he saith nay, lest haply while we gather up the tares, ye root up the wheat with them. Let both grow until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather up first the tares, and bind them in the bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Well, that's an interesting teaching, and thankfully Jesus explained it beginning with verse 36. Then he left the multitudes and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Explain unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, He that sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is what? The world. world. That's a key detail. And the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the devil. They're the evil one. And the enemy that sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are angels. So as you look at what we were talking about a moment ago, you have here during the christian era is the devil sowing some seeds oh yeah no doubt about it but as he sows those seeds revelation 20 tells us the seeds are going to be well let's think of it in terms of pounds hundreds of pounds or thousands of pounds well think about this remember he's got his little season and is the little season going to be the time where he can do more work or less work? Less. Well, if he's going to be able to deceive the nations during his little season, would it be less or more? All right, it's going to be more because, you know, Gog and Magog, he's talking about all kinds of influence. So now he's still sowing seeds, but is he sowing, figuratively speaking, in the hundreds or in the thousands? Thousands. Well, it would be in the hundreds because until the little season comes. Now, whether or not we're in that, we don't know. But he he has certainly some ability. But when the little season is given to him, and he can go out and, you know, then, I mean, it is major activity. He's out there planting all kinds of things. And it it could be. Um, We um, briefly uh, had a chance to mention that and discuss that in one class. We don't know when that little season is going to be. But it is going to be so bad that in Revelation 20, verse 9, John pictures Satan's little season. Uh, It gets to the point where God's people feel like they're encompassed. Satan has really gone out into the world. And last week, if you were in class, I know several were not. We had some weather issues um, that has kept some people out for uh, various weeks. But as you look at our current society, remember the isms that we went through? We've got atheism, we've got denominationalism, we've got humanism, we've got secularism, we've got communism. I mean, we've just got dozens of isms. Now, that's not to say that we're in a little season. But it does let us know that Satan has out there a lot of false philosophies in the world. And he's using them very effectively. So if we're not in that little season yet where he's not able to go out there and um, do even more damage, if you will, not to the point of demon possession, it is, uh, when that time comes, going to be a very, very scary time. Any thoughts that you have before we pick up with Revelation 20.10? Okay. Let's pick up with that 10th verse. And the devil. The devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, which are also... Uh, the beast, and the false prophet. And they are tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, not a lot of information to say about this, but John makes it clear here that Satan, his interest is in tempting humanity, in trying to lead people away from God. He started that with Adam and Eve. And especially during that little season, he's going to do his very best to um, bring as many people as possible into his kingdom. Uh, We know he's a great deceiver. He's a master deceiver. And John says the day is going to come Uh, When Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire, the second death, hell, different descriptions for it, and then he's going to start paying for all the evil that he did. Uh, John specifically here describes it. Uh, He's cast, doesn't want to have that experience, but he's going to be, um, even though he doesn't want to go there, uh, thrust by someone, something into the lake of fire, as well as brimstone. Uh, You know, it's one thing for Satan to go there. But as we look at the Bible, this passage included, we find that Satan's going to have some other... People in hell. He's going to have some company. Uh, John describes this as the beast. Well, remember back in Revelation thirteen, how many beasts do we read about there? There's the beast of all right, beast of evil civil government, and there's also the beast of false religion. All right, do you see those two beasts here in Revelation twenty verse ten? Also the all right, there's a false prophet. Well. When you look at that false prophet, what would you relate that to? Or what's it equivalent to in Revelation 13? Which of the beasts? Alright, the false religion. So if that's false religion and we know we've got two beasts total Revelation 13, that's one. Then when he refers to the beast, that's got to be the other. And what's the other? Alright, then that's going to be the evil... Uh, Wicked, the false governments uh, that he's used throughout time to um, a great deal of success. So you have here really the unholy three, Satan, false religion, and false government. Then this other point, John says that they're going to be tormented, and he describes that torment. What's it going to be like, or how does he describe it? It's going to be Endless. endless forever and ever. Now this is an interesting expression, because as you look at how this is worded in the original text, it is the strongest possible statement for endlessness. Now, think about that. The strongest possible way to describe activity which never stops. So, as the devil goes to hell, God is warning us that this is going to be an experience for him, for those involved with false religion, those involved with evil civil government, uh, especially the kind that has oppressed God's people, um, the unsaved. They're going to enter into this state, and hell will never get any better. It will never cease. Uh, it's also interesting, I think it's parallel to Matthew 25, verse 41. That's a chapter, the part of the chapter where Jesus compares people to sheep and goats. And he talks about these will enter into eternal life, and these will enter into eternal damnation. Alright, that word there, eternal, is, is the same for both. So whatever eternal life is... <coughs> As far as the duration, eternal destruction is also going to be of the same duration. So sometimes people say, well, yes, we believe in heaven and everlasting life, but when it comes to hell, God's a merciful God, and we think hell's not going to be everlasting. We think you know, people are going to suffer there for a period of time, and then God is, is going to somehow relieve them of that. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches, either here in Revelation 20 um, or in Matthew 25. Anything that you want to touch base on before we look at verses 11 to 13 Revelation 20? Stand
1: Here with the word R, and I'm not sure exactly what it is, so I'll just throw this question out there. I may have been under the assumption that when judgment happens, it's going to happen all at one time, and everything is going to happen together. But he says that Satan is going to be cast into the Um,
0: that's a good observation you're not the first excuse me to make it Um, my answer to that is found at the end of revelation chapter 19. if you back up let's just start with 1919 and i saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the uh, throne or on the horse and against his army and the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought the signs and the sight wherewith he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image, the two were cast into the lake of fire that burneth with brimstone. My understanding is that he uses the word are not so much to describe what's going to take place at the end of time. But the word are is related to Revelation 19. In other words, he's already talked about the fate, if you will, of those involved with false religion and those involved with evil civil government. So based on that, since he's already talked about that, are from that standpoint. Just from the standpoint of reading through the text rather than trying to say, well, okay, here's hell. It's already got some occupants and now the devil goes there too. Now that could be the case. Um, is everybody going to be cast into hell at the same time? Or is it going to be, it's kind of like one, two, three, four, five and you know your number's up, your number 10, so off you go and the other nine are there. Um, so you could take that particular view. But based on Revelation 19, you, you have the other option as well. So, um, very, very good observation on your part. Anybody else? Okay, let's read down now through verses uh, 11 through 13. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat upon it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, the great, and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the things which were written in the books, according to the works. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. Okay, kind of following up with what Stan indicated a moment ago, you've got various people going to hell. And before that happens, you've got people standing before the Lord, the great white throne. Well, some observations about the expression great white throne. When you think of the color white, especially in this context, what does white remind you of? All right, that's probably going to be one of the first things that stands out. Purity, that's a good answer. Anything else that we might link with that? Purity? Royalty. Royalty, I think you could do that as well. Holiness, righteousness, sinlessness, all of those words. In fact, if you think about white and you reflect on the Lord's life, you ever see white in the life of Jesus?
1: Transmigration.
0: Yeah. Matthew 17, verse 2, he's transfigured and his garments become white. Brighter, the Bible says, and any fuller could whiten them. So it is this dazzling, this radiant white. Well, you have the same kind of uh, image now being applied to the end of time. And then John, as he describes this throne, he says it's not only white, what else is it? It's great. Why might he use that word? It's a great white throne. Alright, you know, when we think about God. It's not going to be small stuff. It's going to be great. It's going to be significant, um, impressive to the greatest degree. Anything else? The great throne. Hmm? Alright, power. I think you could um, make that point as well. Forever. I think you have that point in there too. The other thing that kind of springs to my mind is that, you know, there are some events. For example, let's say that somebody celebrates an uh, anniversary. You know, they've been married two years. You think that anniversary is going to be celebrated in the same way that the 20th, or the 25th, or the 50th, or if they really live a long time, the 75th? They would say, this is a special anniversary. So when we think about the great white throne, to me, one of the other things that's associated not only with power and and all the other answers that were mentioned there, but great in the sense of it's going to be a very special occasion. I mean, it's going to be not only a big deal, it's going to be the biggest deal that people ever experience in life. Uh, it seems to me that Jesus is sitting on the throne. You may remember back in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, the prophet, uh, he has this experience, and he saw the Lord lifted up. Uh, you've got a throne uh, in that context. 2 Corinthians 5.10, uh, that's one of the passages that inclines me to think that we're talking about Jesus here. The Bible there, through Paul, says, For we must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of... Christ. So Jesus certainly is going to have a part in judgment. Uh, He's going to be the one who judges, John 5, verse 22. And uh, this is the same throne that Jesus referred to in Matthew 25, verse 31, where he talks about the Son of Man, the throne of his glory. So people can have various seats, various thrones, various chairs, but this one is going to be very, very special. Anything you want to add or ask based on what we said thus far? All right, well let's dig into something else. John, as he talks about the face of deity, and again I I'm uh, thinking this is Jesus based on the passages that I just gave. He says something fled from the Lord's face. What fled? Okay, well, that's kind of an unusual statement. Uh, let's begin, I'll at least give you this much. I don't think that John is saying they went off to a different location. For example, if you flee from somebody, you're going to leave the immediate area, but you're probably going to be you know, in the next... Um, um, parking lot or you going to be over there in the neighbors um, lot or neighbors house or something like that probably not what he means in fact we probably could offer a pretty good parallel to the statement what's he mean what do you think he means when he says heaven and earth fled I think you're uh, right in that. I'm going to add a little more to it, but I want to see if we can find another thought before we pick up with that. Heaven and earth fled. Any passages in the Bible, maybe something written by Peter? 2 Peter 3?
1: Does this, happen, does this kind of refer, say, to like the flood? When, when the flood happened, there was nowhere for anybody else to go.
0: Well, um I would say that you're on the right track. But let's just add a little more to that because that's the first answer I want to think about. Peter says heaven and earth are going to be destroyed. 2 Peter 3, uh, verses 7 through 12. Fire, you know, they're going to be burned up. Well, that's another way of saying it seems to me what we have here in Revelation chapter 20. They fled. Well, not literally. It's a way of saying that they were destroyed. Revelation, remember, has a ton of um, symbols and a lot of figurative language. So uh, they're going to be removed. There is not going to be any place to go. Just as there was not in the flood, but at the end of time, you're going to see that magnified, uh, really to the ultimate degree. Because on the um, earth, the flood, people could still live here and reside here. But if you're going to destroy the heavens and the earth, they're gone. Then you have the point that Stan was making a moment ago. Now, uh, the heavens and the earth, obviously, they're not people. But even though they're not people, has there been sin? When we think about the heavens and the earth. Has sin been committed on the earth? Well, obviously so. You've got murder, and you've got anger, and uh, you've got all kinds of bad things. So it seems to me there may be a sense here, when John says they fled away, and this may be a good picture of God's holiness, even when heaven and earth, if you will, appear before God, in the grand scheme of things, the unrighteousness, the blood that was shed, all the evil that was done, figuratively speaking, even heaven and earth can't stand before God. Now, if you let that sink in for just a second, what would that say about the person who comes before God and says, well, I was a pretty good person. That's kind of my neighbor Joe. Took some clothes down to Goodwill. Went to services twice a year, Easter and Christmas, let me in. What's God going to say? Don't want anything to do with you. If heaven and earth, figuratively speaking, can't stand before God, and they didn't commit any sin. You know, they were just the place where sins were committed. But God is so pure, He's so righteous, He's so holy. What about the good people in life? What chance are they going to have? None. What's man's only hope? No man comes to the Father but by Me. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? If we're accountable for our sins and the answer to that question is no, and we fail to get right with God in this life, we will be lost. Now, we don't take any pleasure in that knowledge, but at least we do have that information. And that's one of the reasons why we need to do our best to communicate that and to encourage people to get right with God. A couple of quick points here, and then you may have some information. There are some people who believe that there will somehow be more than one judgment. Uh, that you've got the one mentioned here, and then people sometimes come up with some other judgments. A lot of that is tied in with premillennialism. But that's not what you see here. This is also not what we see in Matthew 25. Remember that judgment seen in Matthew 25? People are compared to animals. Either you're among the sheep or you're among the goats. And Jesus, as you go back and you read that, um, Jesus is talking about all the nations there, and that doesn't leave any room for someone else. And then here in Revelation chapter 20, based on verses 11 through 13. He says, I saw the great white throne, uh, heaven and earth they fled, and then he says, I saw the dead. And then how does he describe the dead in Revelation twenty twelve? the first part of the verse? He says, I saw the small, and I saw the great. Do you think he's talking about people? Um, sometimes they refer to the, uh, uh, the dwarfs. And then you've got the other people. You know, they're the people who are seven feet tall. You think he's talking about height? This guy's short and this guy's tall? I don't think so. What's he mean when he says the great and the small? Who are the great people in life? Alright, we think about people who have obtained or retained high political office. Alright, the commoners, if you will. You've got the average person on the street and then you have people who stand out for some reason, either because of wealth or power, political connections, or uh, maybe they've got a certain skill that the world recognizes and looks to people. Uh, for example, doctors might be in that category. They're specialized uh, physician. Those kinds of things. God says it doesn't matter. If you were the lowliest person on earth, if you were the highest person on earth, everybody is going to be present at this day. So it will be, uh, and again... We've talked about this before. Some people refer to it as a judgment day. I don't object to that, but I'm not sure that that is the best way to describe it. And we know that because after uh, people die, they're either on the good side of Hades or they're on the bad side. So that judgment has already passed. But what we have here really seems to be um, the formal sentencing of people. So everybody, Cain to Abel, Elijah to Jezebel, Jeremiah to Jehoiakim, Paul and Nero, John, Domitian, presidents, paupers, each day one person uh, will appear before God. Thoughts that you have based on what's been said thus far. Stand
1: are we actually talking about a physical entity such as the earth and the heavens and the planets and the stars, etc.? Or are we simply talking about the total population uh, that exists?
0: Well, you certainly have the total population. I don't think anybody, when you look at this and the parallel account by Jesus in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goat imagery, um, you can get away from that. Um, people might have some different understandings of the, the heavens, the stars, and the earth, and so forth, but... Um,
1: They're going to be burned up. Yes. And so if they're going to be burned up, then how can you say, and there was no place found for them? It's not, it must be talking about something that still exists or is going to still exist in some form. That's another reason I'm wondering if it's not talking about the people rather than the physical earth and heaven.
0: You could look at it in that way. Um, My current thinking is, and it may be wrong, is that no place found for them Is another way of describing burned up. Okay, I'm going to let you. May want to have a minute to go back to that thought before we end class, and that's fine. But you can munch on that for a little bit if you like. So, all right. Anybody else? Right? Here we talk is talking
1: about the dead were judged and things. Now in verse six, we talked about there was no power over that. judgment of those that uh, were still outside of Christ
0: let me say a couple more things and then if we need to go back and revisit that which we might let's pick that up but let's just kind of put that on hold for just about a minute anybody else okay uh, let's talk about the books for a little bit and this is kind of kind of take us to where um, Ray was directing us just a moment ago he says the books are opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of the things which are written in the books according to their works. Now, when you have a reference to the books, if someone were to ask you this week, what do you think that means? The dead were judged out of the books. How would you explain that? Well, okay, he does specifically mention, I think it's at the end of verse 12, you know, the works. So that would certainly seem to have some application here, the, the deeds that people did. Um, so that's got to be a part of the thought. Anything else? Well, okay, I think that point could be extracted from that too. There's still at least one other idea there, I think. If you commit a crime, case goes to the prosecutor, and what's the prosecutor going to do? All right, he's going to review the case. Okay, does the prosecutor just have all the information there in his head? Every state law, I mean, he just, okay, choop, yep, that's it. What's he probably going to do? He's going to research. He's going to go back and check the books. Now, it's probably computerized now, but uh, you've probably seen some pictures where they've got all the law books out there. So we're familiar with the idea that there is a connection between books and law. So not only does it seem, based on what we have there at the end of verse 12, people are going to be judged by the works. But also when you think about the um, point related to the law that people lived under. Not everybody's lived under the same law from God, have they? No. Was there a law prior to Moses' time? Oh yeah. I mean, Noah was a righteous man. Well, to be a righteous man and to be a guilty person, what's required? There's got to be some kind of standard. There's got to be some kind of law. It's just not willy-nilly. Well, you're righteous and you're not. It doesn't work that way. And then, was there not another law after the time of Noah? Well, who was that important guy in the Old Testament? His name begins with M, ends with S. All right, That was Moses. Moses' law, right? Moses had a law. And then, is there another law that we read about in the Bible? There's a law of... All right, there's a law of Christ. I was hoping we wouldn't miss that one. So we have at least three laws under which people live. The Bible talks about the Gentiles being a law unto themselves, their thoughts, excusing them or justifying them in Romans 12 and Romans 2 and well, it's in that chapter. But um, you have here with the books uh, all these ideas. And God's going to use that information to determine whether or not people were disobedient or obedient during the law under which they lived. All right, Then you have this other thing. This kind of takes us back to the point Ray was talking about. When you begin to look at the Bible, you have in the Old Testament as well as the new information about sins being taken care of. Remember David after his sin with Bathsheba? What did he say about a sin? God, I want it blotted out. And we don't use the word blot too often, but when we say blot it out, what do we mean? We All right, take it away. Get rid of it. Uh, for example, we hear the government sometimes talking about redacted documents. There's information in there that maybe with an investigation people want to read about, but when they get the document, what's on it? It's, it's either blank or they've blacked it out. And you can't read what was there. Well, that's what God does with sin. Old Testament and New. He blots out sins. He removes sins. Um, that was one of the promises in Jeremiah 31, verse 34. God says with that New Testament, that New Covenant, uh, sins are going to be uh, taken away. They're going to be blotted out. They'll not be remembered. Acts 3.19, times of refreshing will come. 1 John 1, verse 7. Even back in Revelation chapter 7, uh, verse 14. So when he talks about this, and going back to what Ray said uh, back there in verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who's participated in the first resurrection. Well, we can understand that. If you participated in the first resurrection, if you become a Christian, what's true for your sins? They're washed away. Acts 2, verse 38, Acts 22, verse 16. So, because those sins have been blotted out, they've been covered, they've been dealt with, uh, John is able to say, the second death, what's the second death? Well, and hell, for the unsaved. Uh, that has how much power over you? None. That's right. Because you're standing in the grace of God, your sins have been forgiven, you're in Christ. So John says, for you guys, you're good. Don't have a thing to worry about. In fact, I think I had here a couple of passages from 1 John that I wanted to look at. John talks about, I think it's 1 John 2, verse 18. then there was another one which... I don't see offhand. It talks about having confidence, not being ashamed when Christ comes. Let's see if it's first John 2:18. Nope, that's not it. Well, First John 2:28 uh, is one of them, and now my little children abide in him. Why? that if he shall be manifested, we may have boldness and what? Confidence. Some translations might say, not be ashamed when he comes. So based on what we have in Revelation 20, based on this passage from First John and one other that I'm not able to locate right now, John says you don't need to fear when the Lord comes back. You're going to be standing in the grace of God. You're going to be covered. It's going to be the unrighteous folks who are going to be um, absolutely terrified. So follow-up thoughts on what we just went over. Okay, let's talk about a couple of the things. When John says the books were opened, um, a couple things here. Why do you think he used the word books, plural? The books were opened. Well, if you're going to record something, well, let's use the Bible as an example. We've got a book, right? But as we look at that book, is everything about Jesus and the New Testament recorded in there? No. I mean, we have all we need. All God wants us to have. But it's not going to be big enough. But if we want to record all the information about something, oftentimes, will we need one book or more than one book? We're probably going to need more than one book. So here when he says books, he doesn't specifically tell us why he used the plural. But, falling back on the illustration that I just gave, if you have books about something, what's that imply? thoroughness, completeness, nothing's missing. And that seems to, be to, the, uh, to me to be the idea when he, here. When he talks about going to open the books, it's a way of saying that nothing is going to be missed. It would, in my mind, describe God's omniscience. Everything is going to be in full and perfect detail. Uh, there will be no chance for mistakes. God's not going to miss even the slightest thing. Then let's make uh, a couple of the quick points about this as well. John says the books were open. Again, we don't know for sure. But bearing in mind that this book has a lot of symbolism, would you imagine that there's going to be um, literal books up there? Well, let's see. Okay, you know, we've got Stan Palmer. He's over here in page 562, volume 69. Think it's going to be like that? I I don't think so. But God uses figurative things to help us understand spiritual things. And especially in this book, it's not going to be literal. So whether we're dealing with the uh, books, the uh, records of the lives of people, or the book of life... It could be uh, that we have some literal image here, but I suspect it's probably not. Thinking about the Book of Life, we've seen this reference at other times in this uh, letter. And the Book of Life is mentioned six different times, and it's that record, if you will, of God being faithful to him. There were these kinds of books in the first century. There were records of people being uh, good citizens, and that's you know, really uh, what we're talking about here. Uh, John says the people who are listed in this book. Uh, the other passage I just saw, First John 4, verse 17. I knew it was in my notes somewhere and just couldn't find it off the uh, cuff a minute ago. So 1 John 2.28, confidence, don't be ashamed. 1 John four verse seventeen. there he says, Herein is love made perfect with us, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Think about that. In the day of judgment, he says we can have boldness, because as he is, even so we are in this world. Now that is a great, great promise. And you can see how it fits in quite well with Revelation chapter twenty. Unrighteous people, no boldness, a lot of shame. But with God's people, they're told you're going to be okay. Anything you want to add or ask before I run an Old Testament reference with you? Uh, let's get somebody. Steve, i will take your hand as somebody's heading back to the Book of Daniel, Daniel chapter seven, verses nine and ten. Brian. Okay, Steve. You now in this world it says, and I saw the dead. That means all the dead. I believe that is correct. Where he's talking about. You know, the people. And again, you don't want to press the book of Revelation too literally because you will have some people who are still alive when Jesus comes. So they will not have, you know, experienced the physical problem or the physical uh, experience of death. But I think that's just one more way of saying, you know, we're talking about all the folks. And most people will have died, obviously, by the time the Lord has, has returned. You know, even if you've got a couple billion people living on the earth or a trillion, when you look at human history and all the people that have lived and died, Uh, It's just a good summary way of saying everybody's going to be there.
1: So could the the books refer to Old Testament time, New Testament time, people who lived in Old Testament time, people who lived in the New Testament time, can you refer that to the books?
0: Yes. Um, uh, Some people would say the books just deal with the um, unsaved, and that could be true. Um, But again, we're dealing with the universal picture here. Uh, All people are going to be brought before the throne. Each one is going to be uh, sentenced. Um, And to go back to what I said a little earlier, for a lot of those people, they're not going to have to wonder, or at least they shouldn't wonder, where they're going to spend eternity. Because if they've been in Hades for any length of time at all, and they're on the bad side, in my mind, it would be absolute foolishness to think, well, hey, you know, God's a good, graceful, good, merciful God. And if there's a time that comes after this, he's somehow going to figure out that I need to be on the other side of things in eternity.
1: So could the books too be like the old law and the new law?
0: Yeah, and again, I think you have that too, where you've got uh, the law that people were under, the way that they lived their lives, how they responded to that law, and it's going to be, based on all that information, uh, there's going to be that final sentence rendered. So, yes. All right, now, as Brian prepares to read from Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10... Uh, here's a little bit of the context. Uh, you remember that you have Daniel uh, several times in the book of Daniel. He talks about four different kingdoms. Uh, you've got the um, uh, kingdom that was in power, Babylon, uh, during Daniel's time. And then you've got things shifting, world power. The next one comes along, that's Medo-Persia. And then some more time passes. You've got the Greeks coming into power. And then you've got the fourth power coming into uh, play. And that certainly lasted in, um, well into Jesus' time and after uh, and that would be Rome. And uh, here, John or Daniel's talking about um, the fall of Rome, uh, what's going to happen to it. And even though this is about ancient Rome, a culture, a power that's been gone for uh, many, many years, there may be some ultimate application here to the end of time. But again, bear in mind, Daniel doesn't seem to be talking about the end of time per se. Rome, what was going to happen to it, but I think that prefigures the second coming. Uh, Brian, if you would, Daniel 7, 9, and 10.
1: I watched till drones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery steam issued and came forth from behind him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open.
0: Okay. Somehow, in that translation, I didn't get what I wanted. Let's try that once more, if you would. I'm going to turn back there and follow along with you. Maybe I just... Would you read those two verses once more?
1: I watched till throne for put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Okay,
0: I think that was it. Was that in verse 10, that his throne was a fiery flame? Yeah. Okay. Okay, is it steam or stream? Okay, that was, that was what I wanted. Well, we all, we all have some off dates. Uh, all, right, uh, all right, that's okay. Uh, now think about that. Here you have God on His throne, and you've got a stream. Think about a big, uh, you know, uh, running river. But in this case, what's that running river composed of? Not water, but there is fire Can you imagine a river of fire flowing from the throne of God? That is a fascinating image. Well, again, Daniel was talking about ancient Rome. But this may also look forward to heaven. Uh, You know, I don't want to go too far afield with this. But just for the sake of trying to maybe give us a little bit of a visual, imagine the great great white throne of judgment. And there is from that throne a river of fire. Maybe see it, smell it, feel some heat from it, and you're one of the unsaved. And then if the unsaved are kind of like what we talked about before, you know, Stan Palmer, page 69, you know, volume 662, whatever that is, and finally your name is called, and you've seen people picked up, tossed into that lake of fire. Down they go. And then there's another one, and another one. And maybe you see somebody that you consider to be a pretty good person in life. Bang, they're in the river of fire. Can you imagine the terror? In my mind, I can. Now, will it be like that? I have no idea. But we do know at least this much. This imagery is found in the book of Daniel, uh, 7 verses 9 and 10. And I think it's fair to say that based on that, if that is what is applied to ancient Rome, a judgment in this life, can you imagine what it's going to be like in eternity for the people who are sentenced to hell? I mean, it's, it's just too hard to describe and in some cases envision, Right?
1: We, we talk about a river of fire. Actually, those things have happened even during our lifetime volcanoes. Mm-hmm. Of so people, even in Daniel's time, would have been aware of what yeah. a river of fire might really be and uh, even used that as a symbol of what was going to happen to Rome or what was going to happen
0: on yeah. the base. And it's scary stuff. I mean, people see that and they think, there is no way I want to be close to that. I mean, just being close to it, not in it. Consent should probably kill you. But as far as the image of being put there and maintained there somehow, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Stan?
1: Just a question about time. We could envision that, envision his description, because we think in terms of time, is that? Is there going to be an element of time when all this happens?
0: Yeah, that's, uh, you know, one of those questions, again, you wonder about, you think about, you try to grasp, but in our present state, I'm not sure that we can. Um, from our standpoint, if you're processing, in this case, people, and I don't know how many people have lived or will live by the time we will but let's just say it's $10 trillion for a good round number. Um, you know, even if you were just numbering them, one, two, three, four, five, up to $10 trillion, it would take a considerable amount of time. To actually judge people or sentence people based on their works. You know, you're, you're going through the life of a person and saying, you are condemned to an eternity in hell because of how you lived, and hear the reasons. Um, you know, that to me would almost seem like an eternity, quote unquote. Um, but maybe people will somehow have an instant recollection. I don't know. Um, but when we think about God, he usually is pictured in such a way where he doesn't take unnecessary amounts of time. I mean, he acts, and especially with things like judgment. It's swift, it's certain, and however that's going to be. I mean, even the coming of Jesus, the swiftness is emphasized. So building on that a little bit, you've got a swift coming, and then you know, the judgment is drug out, looking at it from our perspective for the next you know, 10,000 years. That, to me, doesn't seem to be consistent with what we find in the rest of the scriptures. So exactly how that works out, how much time, quote-unquote, it will take, I don't know. But it would seem to me that somehow uh, it's going to be done in a fairly expeditious manner. Anybody else? Okay, let me make a couple of the quick points and then we find a good breaking point. We'll talk about death and Hades uh, next week and I will throw something out for you uh, based on the King James translation. Uh, where we were, he talks about in verse 13, he says, and the sea gave up the dead that were in it. But you have to be careful here as far as the language is used because remember, heavens and earth, Second Peter chapter 3, they're going to be gone. Uh, so the sea is certainly not going to be Available for people to use. But what's he mean there, you think? The sea gives up the dead in it. Just the sea? Why mention the sea? But if somebody lo- is you know, goes down in the shipwreck, they died at sea. Now, things have changed, but especially in John's day. Somebody dies at sea, going to be able to recover the body? No. I mean, if it goes out there, you know, in the middle of the ocean and somebody sinks, he's gone. You know, we're, we're, we're not going to be able to have any kind of burial for him. So when we think about sea that is one of the places where we, we can't always reach, even with our modern equipment. So it seems to me this is an image to say, no matter where you die, are you going to show up the Judgment Day? Yeah. In our time, we've got some, uh, for example, the Space Shuttle Challenger back in, what, 86 was about the year that that um, went south and people died in space. Uh, is that going to be a problem for God? Those people who died in space? He's going to be able to get them too. So wherever we were, uh, land, sea, up in the air, space, and so forth, it's not going to be an issue. All right, let me ask you this question. Anybody have the King James translation? Okay, Bonnie, would you read for us?
1: And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up
0: the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And then 14.2, if you would.
1: And, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire.
0: Okay, now think about that. That that strike right, you a little odd. What's a lake of fire? Hell. All right, so just read that as hell. And hell was cast into hell. I says, well, that seems kind of odd. We'll answer that question next week. Thank you. That's a good teaser. Yeah, a teaser.